for designers, I think if something is possible, then it exists in our minds, and then we go manifest it. And once it actually physically exists, then other people can go, oh, that's possible. Until then, it's impossible. What we do is actually, you know, it's joyful. Welcome to The Future We Want, a podcast for rebellious leaders ready to get to work, do the work, and create the future we want. I'm Rafael Bemparad, founding partner of BBMG, a branding and social impact agency that works with leaders that won't wait on things that can't wait. On today's episode, I am thrilled to share our conversation with William McDonough, the visionary pioneer of circular design and a passionate champion for a future that is delightfully diverse, environmentally sustainable, socially just, and unapologetically joyful. And as you'll hear, we go deep into the human side of this story, from what it was like to grow up in post-World War II Japan to the inspiration of his mentor, the legendary photographer Walker Evans, to a call to imagination for a new generation to design a future we might all want to be part of. I, I find that the question of how do I love all the children of all species for all time is very effective. You do get to the core of things pretty quickly. Welcome to the Future We Want podcast with William McDonough. Hello, Bill. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. Wow. It is such an honor to be with you. Now, we met a few years ago as part of the Sustainable Brands community, and we've had the opportunity to partner on helping brands embed sustainable design in their strategies and their products, their services, and their experiences in the world. And of all the people who I've had the opportunity to meet in this work, no one has captured my imagination or shaped how I see the possibilities of design to honor and serve humanity more than you have. I experience you as this unique and remarkable combination of the wisdom of a philosopher, the technical expertise of a scientist, and the language of a master storyteller and poet, all in service of designing a world where we flourish together on a living planet. So thank you for your time and for being together today. It's an honor, thank you. We've been talking a little bit about the premise of our podcast and how it was inspired by the author Charles Eisenstein, who wrote that we're living in the space between stories, where the old stories are no longer serving us and yet the new stories are just emerging. And part of this moment we're in, in the space in between, is imagining a new way of life. And we've talked a lot in the context of branding at BBMG about brands being this unique entity in the world that uniquely holds systems and stories, systems that redesign how we make, produce, use, um, and reuse the things that create value and stories that shape our sense of identity, of aspiration, of belonging. And you've talked about how we need to imagine a new way of life, new systems and stories that can shape who we are. And I'm curious, how do we shift the systems and stories that we've inherited and imagine a new set of systems and stories for where we go that embody a whole new way of thinking about value? 
If we look at the difference between values and value, we can identify a point of connection to someone. And if they're, in effect, you know, like Plato, looking for what is the right and the wrong, or the good, the bad, the moral, the immoral, uh, the beautiful, the ugly. And if you start there, and as an architect, of course, let's, we start there. And the first thing you do is find the way you see. Then we rearrange furniture, and then we build. But, but first, it's changed the way we see what is beautiful. So if someone says, my backyard looks terrible, it's getting really messy, you could say, well, you know, to you, it looks messy. To the butterfly, it's looking better every day. So like, what if you merge that, you know, what you see and what the butterfly sees? And what if we have a new way of thinking about your garden? And um, so change the way we see. Now, the Aristotelian, you know, Plato's student, called what he did practical wisdom. So I guess the wisdom from Plato, and then the question is, now how do I act? Based on that, that's the right thing to do. How do I act? And so we see that play out every day too. And so that then produces a line of exercises that are quite exquisite. And it's a, almost a choreography that goes from values to value. And because what we find is if you start with number, you can get confused about values. People who say, especially in corporate responsibility, for example, they'll say, I'm being less bad. And that's good. That's very confusing, especially to children, all these double negatives. So, you know, how can less bad be good when by definition it's bad? And it's just less so. So you've just confused a numerical relationship, less and more, with a values relationship, good and bad. So, you keep, I mean, imagine telling your children, you know, please go out and be less bad today. You know, what is that? So I think if you start with value, just number, you can get to benchmarking and say, oh, I was less bad today. Or, you know, I'm trying to be 20% less and whatever. But if you start with your values, the search for the good, and search for the beautiful, then you move very, very elegantly from there to principles. Like, what do I do and what don't I do? Right? You decide that you have principles. And what are those? Those become the fulcrum of your levers of change. So your activity, which would be the levers. People forget with Archimedes that he said, give me a lever and a place to stand and a fulcrum, and I could lift the earth. So there you have your fulcrum. The thing doesn't move. What do you do and what you don't do? You don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't steal. And so when people have a fulcrum that says, I lie, cheat, and steal, like we've seen, it's problematic. So from the, that fulcrum, you then move to your visions, from your principles. You go to visions of things, and that's where I live, my job. I'm a professional visionary. And so you go from values to value. If you start with value and number, you're in the less and more world. You're not in the good and bad world. Because you could be... As Peter Drucker pointed out, the job of managers is to be doing something the right way. But the job of executive is to do the right thing. 
because if you're an exquisite manager using Six Sigma tools for perfection, you can become perfectly wrong. And so the first question is, what is right? So we move from being just less and more, let us breathe first and then think, what is right and wrong? Then we'll go there. We may have spoken about how my dad is a rabbi who teaches at the Vatican, and I talk about him all the time on the podcast. And I so deeply appreciate the dialectic between Aristotle's practical wisdom and Plato's quest for the true, the beautiful, and the good, the difference between an orientation of value or statistics and values, quantification versus qualification, being smart, but also, yes, as you've shared, being wise. And I'd love to get a sense of what is the path as a leader from smart to wise? What does it mean to seek and hold wisdom? as we try to grapple with the moment we're in and the world we might want to create and live in together? Well, I think the, the, the part that propels me is the, the sense of abundance that, it, that we have to work with, that it, it does depend on your perspective. And people say pessimists see a glass half empty and an optimist see it half full. I think the glass is always full of water and air. So, you know, it's, there's, you know, what do you mean it's not full? Of course it's full. But if you, in my case, I want to be able to share more. So if I want to share more, I actually need a bigger glass. Because as it says in the Tao, if you, you know, if you fill your cup to the brim, it will spill. So in order to not, you know, to call upon all this abundance and, and then share it, we need a bigger glass. So there's more to share. And I think... That's really the part that it begs the question, which is how can I create an abundance for sharing and be sharing it? And it's a fundamental question. So that's the, the joy of it is the sharing. When I look back at my own life and think of all those moments where people have shared wisdom, I'll never forget standing with a eight by 10 view camera uh, next to Walker Evans when he was in his 70s, and I'm in my early 20s, and he had Nestec 70 with a Polaroid. And I said, Mr. Evans, you're the greatest black and white photographer of all time. And as far, you know, as, far as I'm concerned, you know, he's my mentor. And um, I said, what are you doing with an Nestec 70? You know, I mean, I knew, but I, I wanted to ask him. And he said, he said, Bill, let me teach you something. When I was your age, I could carry 40 pounds of equipment. And now I could ask you to carry it for me. But, you know, I could do that. And I went and I photographed. And then when the four by five came along, you know, basically super graphics, and I could, I could move around and went to the factories. And then when the Rolleiflex came along, two and a quarter, I could move inside the factories. And then when the Leica came along, silent, small, I could go to the subways in New York. And then here we are. And, you know, it's 1972 and I can do this. Here, portrait of William McDonough by Walker Evans. And, the, and I'm sitting there looking at this picture thinking, this is astonishing. And, and I'm trying to integrate what he just said. And then he goes, Here's, listen to this. Every 10 years, put down your tools and take up the new tools. 
He said, if I was still using an 8x10 view camera, I would have only had one life. And so what I've been doing every 10 years, as I look back, was exactly what he said. I've been putting down my tools and taking up the new tools. So first, you know, I learned to be an architect and you know, I still buy different type. And then I, you know, painting. Then I got into architecture. I built the first solar house in Ireland, experiment. Then I trained up as an architect. And then I started adding to my portfolio of things to worry about, like chemistry. Like, what, if, what kind of buildings are these? What are they made of? And so we formed the Green Building Movement. And I inaugurated LEED at the University of Virginia when I was the dean. And off we go on Green Building. And then I got into green chemistry. I won the presidential award for green chemistry the first one. And, you know, where did that come from? And just started because I had been worrying about children in a daycare center I was going to be designing. And what would they be putting in their mouths since that appeared to be their primary occupation? And so, what, you know, what what is that? So I got into that. And then I, then I, you know, I've always been solar powering the buildings and buildings like trees. And, and then I got into circular economy. And then we've created that whole strategy and waste equals food and so it's a design problem so basically i think about all these people that are dying to go to mars and the moon i said would you take two years off of all that for do us a favor put all that brilliance and energy you've got into carbon capture for a couple of years just get that figured out and then go back to mars you know go ahead how about blue planet first let's give a little little love right so it's a great moment New tools. We need new tools. Wow! Like the the Walker Evans experience that you had, I'm I'm really curious to learn about the inspiration of your life and the inheritance of wisdom and humanity that made you who you are. Part of the hope of the conversations that we're having is that we could reflect on the people and experiences that shaped us in service of how we might meet this moment and the kind of values we might embody. And I'd love just to know who most made you, you, and what were the sources of inspiration that shaped who you are today, the inheritance of humanity that's inside of you. And in particular, if we could start there, you know, growing up uh, in Japan, how did being in Japan shape who you are and how you see the world? Well, as you asked that question, I was, I was reflecting on my parents. And especially my mother, she had met my father at the University of Michigan. She was studying architecture and he was studying Japanese and law. And they had been selected as one of 200 Americans um, to go to Japan after the war ended. And essentially what MacArthur was planning is waging peace. I think he knew that they would have to have absolute surrender because of the nature of Japanese, and that, that he would have to leave the emperor in place so they wouldn't lose their sense, but, um, but otherwise, absolute surrender. And, and the bombs are evidence. Um, so my parents were in Japan. My mother was one of the first American civilian women in Japan after the war, and maybe the first, somebody told me that. She was the first down the gangplank. The, um, they went in there, and they went without uniforms, without paperwork, without marked jeeps with a, a grace and dignity just to go make friends. No weapons. So imagine invading Japan, wearing Aloha shirt, speaking Japanese, uh, and taking baths with everybody. That's what happened. We like invading Iraq, wearing Aloha shirts, speaking Farsi. I mean, what? 
compared to, you know, stormtroopers. So just imagine. And that's what they were doing there. So this beauty of what they were trying to do, which is wage peace, basically. And so we lived in a Japanese paper house. We, as little children, we would hear the farmers come into the city on the cobblestones with their ox carts to collect our sewage to take it to the farms. And my mother would come in and sing us songs in Japanese, southern folk songs. She was from Alabama. And in that soft voice, making up words about poop and honey wagons and night soil. And, you know, you're three years old and your mom's singing poop songs in the night. Put you back to sleep. So you're in heaven. And then, you know, I always thought, well, the farms and the cities, one thing, one big organism, waste equals food. And we're here to help each other. And then she would do flower arranging and I'd be watching her. And she'd be moving this little twig left and right. And I say, Mom, what are you doing? You know? And she goes, I'm trying to find the ma, looking for the ma. What's the ma? The space between the flowers. Oh, now I see what you're doing. So, you know, that, that was Japanese, the space in between the stories. So what is the emptiness? What is the fullness? Those kind of fundamental things. So then when I saw first Life magazine picture of Hiroshima, I was about five. I, I remember shuddering in horror and thinking, why do we do, do these things to each other? And this is these people. I mean, we spoke Japanese at home. And wow. And then, and then I thought, how is it physically possible that that could occur? How do you make a city disappear in seconds? It takes thousands of years to build, seconds to destroy. So I think that became a fundamental part of my upbringing was that that we're here to wage peace, and, and we're here to find that space that allows us to communicate the emptiness that we can then fill with our generosity of relation. And, and then we move to this other question is, are we here to destroy each other? Or are we here to heal and, and enhance each other? So that was important. And then right after that, we moved to Hong Kong. But I always spent my childhood summers in the Puget Sound on Hood Canal, very beautiful place. My grandparents lived in a cabin, raised oysters, composted, um, Second World War, recycled everything. And so there, I was surrounded by giant trees and fish and orca, you know, but during the year, I'd be in a desert island, basically. And we had millions of refugees coming in from China. We would have to stand in line for water, everybody. We had four hours of water every fourth day during the dry season. Yeah. And we all shared it and everybody, nobody broke in line. Everybody shared with everybody. We've tried to figure out how to help the refugees, you know, because they were obviously suffering. And, uh, and it was a different, for, well, for me as a kid, I mean, looking at it. So I saw abundance in the summer and I saw extreme limits. In, I'm really interested about the, there's kind of a, a duality that you're describing, a combination of a way of seeing abundance, the water and the air and the glass, the space between the flowers, the moth, the emptiness and the fullness. And way of seeing and, and being in abundance allows for is that the part of us that is triggered by scarcity into fear or into othering becomes a different posture. And I'm curious, 
you're describing sharing the water, the refugees coming from China. How, what was modeled or embodied by your parents or culture around you? So moving from scarcity to abundance as a mindset is part of a step toward loving one another. But then there seems to be another step, which is to see each other, the humanity in each other, the loving and the generosity of the other. How was that born inside of your worldview? in the inspirations of your life as you show up now? I think it's just, it was the way my parents, it was, it was gracious, it was kind, it was attractive. And that, that was the first part. Um, they always saw the best in people and they would warn me, not everybody is well-intentioned, but you can't be. It's that question of generosity, how can I help you? How can I make the world better because I'm here? And then how can we all do that? And I think the tools of commerce, I also learned that from my dad. So I use the tools of commerce. I find it the most efficient, effective, profoundly wonderful way to work with velocity and scale is to use commerce because it's we're quick. And so we just do make sure everything's really profitable for our clients. And we don't sit and argue about that. They're in commerce, you know, so it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. You don't negotiate that. Because if they're not here commercially, then they're not here. If they're not here, we can't make the world better. So it's not some argument about adding sustainability to what you do now as an extra cost. It's embedding it inside and finding the opportunity that gives you, you know, some massive and for designers, I think when you have a challenge, it is, if something is possible, then it exists in our minds. And then we go manifest it. And once it actually physically exists, then other people can go, oh, that's possible. Until then, it's impossible. What we do is actually, you know, it's joyful. It's also hard, but, but you, you'll find the thing that brings the value to those people and expresses the values at the same time. I would love just to pick up with the um, connection between what you observed, whether it was uh, in the Puget Sound with oysters and or compost, or it was the farmers picking up the poop in Japan and bringing it back to the fields, all of these experiences uh, that shaped you and then the levers of commerce that take the very same principles and turn them at the intersection of values to value. And I would love to get a sense of you, if you don't mind, just give us a perspective on how you think of um, design principles and the heart of what circular design or cradle to cradle design says about the purpose of design in our economy, how you would ask all of us, whether you are an architect or a designer, a storyteller or a poet or a graphic designer or an industrial designer, I'd love just to get a, a sense of what's your invitation um, to thinking about design and commerce together as a way to transform the world we're in and to design the future we might all want to be part of. I, I find that the question of how do I love all the children of all species for all time is very effective because 
you do get to the core of things pretty quickly. And, and it's one of those questions when you're looking at something and saying, is this doing that? And you realize that even when people have, you know, say to us, oh, we love your idea of circular economy, so we think here, isn't this great? Here's a circular product you know, designed to be reused or whatever. But the first question is, is it healthy? So we, we're looking for safe, then circular. So when somebody shows me their product and it's full of you know, strange chemicals or whatever, and, I, and then they say, isn't it great, we're circular. And I go, well, that's retox, not detox. So if we're gonna just retoxify, then circular is bad. It takes us to the values again. So you may think it's a great quantification because you're doing it again. But what if you're doing the wrong thing again? Yeah, it's actually worse. So, yeah. So I think your point about qualification then quantification is exactly the goal statement we have. And anybody who's doing anything can start with this uh, and then apply it, which is our goal is a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, water, soil, and power, economically, equitably, ecologically, and elegantly enjoyed, period. Now, design into that, because that's your intention. The design is the first signal of human intention. We have designs on the world. Okay, what are they? And if all you have, which I find sad, is the less bad mentality, you would be saying, my goal is a less monotonous, less unsafe, less unhealthy uh, world, um, economically enjoyed. Oh, we're losing an opportunity to enrich that dialogue. When we look at a world of limits and get all freaked out, and I keep hearing people say, oh, the circular economy, we're decoupling you know, the use of resources uh, from industry. No, we're not. We're recoupling. We're recoupling. So when I hear people say, I have natural resources, uh, I mean, think about it. If you have an HR department in a company, one of the first things I suggest to CEOs is probably retitle that to human relations. Because these people aren't resources. You're in a relationship with them. And that's a whole other attitude. It's quite amazing. And if you look at the natural world, if you say, we have natural resources, like, excuse me? No, we don't. We have natural sources. They're only resources if we use them over and over again. So I reserve the word resources for the circular economy. They are resources, right? But in the meantime, we're in relation to the natural world. So it's natural relations. Oh, and then if you talk to an indigenous person, they look at you like, where have you been? Because of course, it's all relations. That's how this works. Yes, of course. And then we do the same with economic. You're in an economic relationship. So it's not resources, it's relations. So when I design a carpet, like we did for Shaw, Berkshire Hathaway, which is no longer I'm selling you something untoward materially, you know, and then calling it circular or something. We're actually storing our raw materials on our customers' floors. They're our, fat, they're our warehouse. We're in relationship. We're, we're, we're providing flooring services and comfort and acoustics and safe materials. And when they want to change it from pink to green, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's solar powered system and we pick it up and we 
deliver the new the new one and we take it back and we start raw material and it goes somewhere else. And all of a sudden, 1.4 billion pounds of carpet in the United States is no longer waste, it's an endless resource. It's providing flooring services to people in a relationship. There, It's that relationship for business is the most valuable thing. It's the economic relationship you have, not them as a resource. It's the fact that you get to keep in relation. Your customer is always there because you're in a relationship. Yeah, it's fun. You have talked a lot, the purpose of design being creating a world of abundance and joy that can be shared with 9 billion people. And over and over, you've connected abundance and joy. Your vision statement is something that can be equitably enjoyed. And I'd just love to get a sense of the role that joy plays in design, the role that joy plays in crafting a human or life-centered economy. How do you see the role of joy as part of the design aspiration and really what we're trying to create and manifest? Well, I mean, if it's so easy if we can have the pleasure of watching children because they work from joy to joy if they're given the opportunity. Even in misery, you know, because it's not easy to be a little kid sometimes. It's certainly not, you know, difficult conditions. Um, just imagine, you know, I work in creative things and, you know, it's so hard to imagine being creative if you're a With the children's play in my, um, I would love just to conclude our conversation by thinking about the future we want, painting a picture of the future where every human being can see themselves in it. And, uh, you have shared this exquisite vision of a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, soil, water, and power, economically, ecologically, equitably, and elegantly enjoyed. That is the promised land. And I'm, I'm curious if we were to think about the next generation in mind, or even a couple generations in the future, how would you hope that future generation would look back on the moment we're in right now and how we met it? What would you hope they might say about us? We're in the time when away is going away, away itself. We used to think that we could throw things away. I remember Emerson in the 1830s was invited by Harvard to give a speech on the subject of nature. And part of the premise that they were questioning is that if, if humans are natural, are therefore all things made by humans part of nature? So it's, you know, which is an interesting question. Like, are we nature? Is this nature that we are? In the age of the Anthropocene, where all large mammals are under human management, you know, where we do control the entire planet, in effect. And so one of his questions as he developed the thinking was essentially a question of what is nature? He, he, he has a statement in there that's effectively something like, nature is all, I think he called them the unchangeable essences. Um, those things which are too big for humans to affect. It's actually unchangeable essences. And his examples were something like the oceans, 
the mountains, the leaves, the air. So much for the first industrial revolution. Okay. We can fill the oceans with plastic. We can take down mountains. We can destroy the air, right? And we can, so it's like, wait a minute. We were in a place where the human psyche was looking at the natural world thing. It's just too big, so big. You can absorb whatever we throw at it. And now we realize how small and delicate it really is. And that makes us small and delicate. So if we look at what it means to be a human, for me, I go back to that childhood memory. It's about the soil. Because let us not forget the word human comes from the word humus. So we are the soil of people. And that in order to understand what it means to be in relation with humus, we have to become grounded, literally. So what is the word for being grounded? It's humility, humus again, to be grounded. So we need to bring an age of humility and an age of connection to the soil, because we are physically soil people. So when we think about that, for example, that idea of safe soil is really important. And I think for the children, if they see when did we get it on the issue of carbon management and the issue of regenerating soil health and so on, we need a regenerative that heals the landscapes, heals our agriculture, heals the soils. And if we get back to those core level of healing soil using renewable power, right? that's how nature does it. So if we go back and model ourselves on the natural world again, and then start to think if we had to redo it, what if we did it in aligning with nature instead of over? For young people who may have lost faith in the system and don't see a future that they can believe in, to go full circle to where we started, speaking directly to a young person what are the tools 10 years now from the last set? What are the tools we have to set down and let go of? And what are the tools we need to embrace? When I learned cabinet making, uh, my teacher said, you have to build your planes first yourself. You have to cut the blocks. You have to cut the iron. You have to grind it. You have to hone it. You have to get it bolted and you have to make a box full of your planes so that you have your tools. And then, then you can use your tools to do the work. You have to make your own tools. I would tell that to the young people. You have to make your own tools. So set your goals, make your own tools. And so if you think about Kennedy when he got up and said, we're going to the moon, that was interesting. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm a little kid and go, hey, we're going to the moon. It wasn't a question. It's like, wow, cool. And so then when I got asked to work on the Mars space station by NASA, I said, well, can, can I, can we build a space station on Earth first before we go to Mars? Can we come back to the blue planet and then we go to the red planet? So I think that's what we need right now is an Earth shot, not a Mars shot. Moon's interesting, but you know, uh, the Earth is, needs us now. So when people say nature, doesn't need humans, humans need nature, it will survive us, you know, whatever. That's a sad story. Nature needs us desperately right now, are you kidding me? So, so let's get there, let's do an Earth shot with the kids. And if you think about when we did NASA's space station on Earth, we worked with the rocket scientists. That's why I asked for them to be on my team. They invented the photovoltaic, the power stuff in space. And guess what, we get to use it here on 
earth. How cool is that? So that's the stuff. And let's bring it on down, get back, you know, bring it down to earth and get down to earth. So, so I think that's the key for the young people is to remember that the average age of the engineers when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon in the Apollo program was 28, which means when Kennedy severed the moon to the moon, they were just graduating from high school. Think about that, you know? And they put them on the moon. They didn't know we couldn't do it. They studied science, they studied astronomy, they studied geometry, they studied thermodynamics. Think of all the things you have to do to get some on the moon. Start dreaming it up. So we need an earth shot. And we need the kids to know they have an earth shot in front of them. And we get all this together. And, it's time, and I think it's time for adults to start behaving again with child supervision. So they should just take over. I think that's what you see. You know, when you see people like Greta, what is she doing? You're saying, enough. You, you lost to tell us what you're doing. Because you, you didn't get it. You don't get the new tools. They need to create their own planes, sharpen them, and then use them and craft the new. Amen. With an earth shot in front of us, a vision designing to love the children of all species for all time in a world of abundance and joy awaiting us. Thank you, Bill, so much. Thank you. For your time and your wisdom and your inspiration every single day. I have in my mind's eye literally every day when I wake up, how might I choose to love the children of all species yeah. of all time today? And so I thank you for that. And here's our earth shot and folks in high school today making their own planes and embracing the opportunity that awaits. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much for listening to The Future We Want from BBMG. We've been speaking with William McDonough, the visionary pioneer of circular design and the leading force behind the cradle to cradle and green building movements. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review as it helps others find the podcast. And for additional reading and resources, check out the podcast details or visit bbmg.com. This episode wraps season one in which we've shared the visions and voices and values of amazing leaders on racial justice, inclusive economics, healing divides, truth in media, and much more. And when we return in a couple months, we'll be showing how these issues are coming into play with the brands and companies that are reimagining their categories, shifting culture and behavior, and influencing who we are and how we can live together in a radically better future. The Future We Want is produced by Liz Courtney. Original music and audio production is by Go Destroy Art. See you in the future.